This is Women in a Day, a podcast created to give a deep look at the daily lives of women of all kinds, from sunrise to sunset, with Jenny Halzer and Portia Hensley. Hello and welcome to Women in a Day podcast. I'm Portia Hensley and I'm here with Jenny Hauser, my co-host. Hello. And we've got a great guest today, Holly Borowski. Hi. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about her. Holly's a research scientist currently working on target tracking algorithms at Numerica Corporation in Fort Collins, Colorado. She received her PhD from the University of Colorado Boulder in 2016, and before that, she spent six years as an officer in the Air Force. Holly is an avid mountain biker and spends most of her free time traveling with her bike or hanging out with her dog. Welcome, Holly. Hello, Thank you. Holly. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to meet you. <laughs> we're really excited to have a science, math, STEM type person here because most of our interviewees have not come from that. So we're interested to hear what it's like to be a woman in science. Yeah, of course. So first of all, yeah, tell us what does that even mean? What does that even mean? What okay. does that even mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough question. So I've just always been interested in kind of math and science. And so that's always what I've done. But it's true that I've sort of always been in an environment that's predominantly male, typically one of, you know, a small portion of females. Um, right now at my company, it's kind of that way. In school, it was that way. Even with my hobbies, it's it's very much like that. So, you know, that's sometimes fun, sometimes can be challenging, but that's kind of how my day-to-day life has been being in, in science and engineering. So. so what does your job entail? Now the job that I'm doing entails a lot of math for algorithm design, for target tracking algorithms, and also a lot of programming. So we sort of test out and prototype the algorithms that we design and try to improve them and test them on lots of data and things like that. And so, you know, day to day I go in and I'll either work a lot on in code or I will do sort of some of the math to try to improve our designs of, of these target tracking algorithms. So. Explain to our listener what an algorithm is. Okay, so an algorithm is just sort of a step-by-step procedure for doing something. So it can be, you know, something extremely simple. I mean, you could even think of an algorithm as like a step-by-step process for getting ready in the morning or something like that. But it's okay. it's just more thought of in like a, you know, computer program setting, like a step-by-step set of instructions for what you need to do to accomplish some objective. So, you know, what I do is kind of design these algorithms with the math in mind so that they have certain predictable outcomes, like predictable performance guarantees or things like that. And, or I, you know, work on a team that helps design these things. So in, in particular, the ones that I work on for target tracking are the application would be, you know, if, if some country like North Korea were to launch a missile, we take in all the data that's being collected on that and, then we're able to come up with a really accurate picture of what's being launched and what's being done. So we could hopefully, you know, track that and shoot it down. That's fascinating. <laughs> do you only do missile tracking? Right now, right yeah. Now? So I'm actually moving within the company to do like space object tracking in, in January. I'm going to start sort of a new job within the same company. What's um, a space object? So just like satellites or anything that's orbiting the Earth. Our company has a network of telescopes that collect data on these things and you know, we have a part of the company that does tracking of these objects and cataloging and things like that and analyzes when, for example, 
maybe a piece of debris in space is about to collide with a satellite that somebody cares about. You want to know about that so that maybe the satellite can maneuver and get out of the way if it needs to or if it can. This space debris, is it being tracked by what? Our company has just a network of, of you know, pretty low-cost telescopes that and they collect can data. see the debris coming? Um, I don't know exactly all the details yet, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know how much they can see or what, what size objects they can see. But, you know, they can take observations, I know, of generally objects that are in, they're in space. Yeah, I wish I could tell you more about, like, the size and all that stuff. But um, Is that a move that can... you wanted to make? Yeah, so I was actually, my background is more in space. So, like, I did my graduate degrees in aerospace, and I helped manage a small space launch when I was in the Air Force. And so the company has a big need for this more people to join this part of the company. Um, and so they approached me to see if I wanted to. And I was really interested in it because it lines up with my background really well. And I've enjoyed the work I've done so far, but mm -hmm. just kind of cool to do a new challenge. And So you're kind of downplaying that you have this PhD in aerospace <laughs> engineering. <laughs> is it engineering? Aerospace engineering, engineering? Aerospace engineering, that's right. And is CU a pretty popular school for that? Yeah. I know a couple people. Yeah, it is. Um, a lot of people go there and study aerospace to then go work at the Jet Propulsion Lab in California. So that's, I think it's a really like kind of almost a pipeline, a really good program as, as far as I know. And I really enjoyed it. I did less of a, I mean, my degree was aerospace, but my research was a little bit less focused on aerospace specifically, but um, what was your research? Of, my research was in game theory actually, but using game theory um, to design control algorithms for what they call multi-agent systems. So um, an example of a multi-agent system would be if you had like multiple unmanned aircraft that are programmed to accomplish a task together. Wow. Like how do you design each each individual aircraft's decision-making policy to accomplish the goal that you want? So that would be an example of the kind of things that I was researching. Is there a reason you didn't do something like math instead? Um, <laughs> I kind of bounced around. I mean, I kind of get pulled in a lot of different directions because I just like math a lot, but then I like to have um, an application behind the math that I do. My undergrad degree was actually in math. You know, I thought that that was kind of what I was going to stick with. And, you know, you can kind of go from anything from very pure, pure math that kind of nobody understands, <laughs> except for the people that do it, right. to very applied. And so, you know, just kind of figuring out what I enjoy. Um, I realized I like things with applications that I understand and that I feel like I can make an impact in. I can, I feel like I can get pulled in a lot of different directions because a lot of different things are interesting to me, but yeah. I always need to have like a, a motivating application behind what I do. So that's kind of what, what led me to work on that, that stuff. So. But originally you wanted to be a pilot, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. That, is um, that why you went to the Air Force? Yeah. That's why I went to the Air Force Academy. Instead um, of MIT or something? <laughs> right. I don't know if I could have gotten into MIT. When I went to the Air Force Academy, I, I really did want to be a pilot. That was what my dad did. He was a fighter pilot in Vietnam and a test pilot after that. Is that um, from the time you were a little girl? Yeah. So he was, he retired from the Air Force when I was 10. So he, wow. you know, I didn't grow up with him still. He was, I think, mostly finished flying by the time I was in like elementary school or so. Did he push um, that on you? No, not at all. No. I was just, he was kind of my role model. And so that's what I wanted to do because I just thought it was so cool that he did it. Yeah. I mean, I still do, but I just, while I was at the Air Force Academy, kind of figured out that I had other interests and I got really into cycling at the time um, and racing and wanted to pursue that and somehow just kind of lost the 
excitement for flying. I started ground school and it was, you know, kind of felt like a slog and I wasn't that motivated and I just didn't, you know, you didn't love it, didn't love it. And so, I mean, I didn't even really get to the flying part. You know, there's a big commitment and going to pilot training is takes up a lot of your time. You kind of have to give up a lot of hobbies and, and other goals. So I wasn't interested in doing that at the time. So. Did you struggle with that decision or did it just seem to come about it just more seemed naturally? To happen, yeah, it just seemed to happen really naturally. So um, it didn't feel like a loss of No, a big not at all. Then. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was multiple factors, but I was just so excited about other things I was doing that it was, it seemed fine to not, <laughs> yeah. not go to pilot training. Yeah. Do you feel like you were just born being interested in math and science or do you feel like you had, it sounds like you had some influence? From yeah. I mean, it's hard to say which, you know, cause I, I know I was interested from a very young age and I think that was, that had a lot to do with my dad, you know, cause he's also very like engineering minded. His I was going to say it's easier when you can have right. conversations with someone who also gets it yes. at home and yeah. it's, it's hard to be excited about school if then you come home and try and to explain don't. it to your family and they're like, yeah, exactly. carry the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was, I, I do, I mean, the youngest age I remember being interested in math, I remember like, I think it was like third grade. I hated math because it felt like all memorization and we had to like remember how to like multiply things and, and whatever. And I, mm -hmm. I think my mom has told me that like they even were kind of like, I don't know about her math abilities. Maybe we should hold her back. And then in fourth grade, I got, you know, we did like long division or something. I remember, I think that was the point when I started just like really liking it. Cause I liked the process of, you know, figuring things out. I didn't like the memorization that I thought math was before then. So mm -hmm. um, when did you realize you were good at it? Uh, at some point, I think in high school. Yeah. I remember just, like taking some math classes and just enjoying it, but also like doing, doing fairly well on like tests and things like that and kind of liking the challenge of it. And I mean, it was the same thing that I kind of just talked about, but at an older age is like, I liked the fact that you could go into a test or do the homework and figure something out rather than having to like memorize all these facts or, I mean, I think that just had a lot to do with the way tests and various subjects were designed. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that's kind of what I liked about it is that it was a, just more of a logical thought process instead of trying to memorize a bunch of facts or like, I also, I mean, I liked a lot of other things too. I liked writing and reading and, you know, I loved um, literature and things like that, but it was just, yeah, really enjoyed my math and science classes the most though. Did you feel like you were encouraged by teachers and yeah. adults to pursue that? Yeah, I, I think that I had some really great teachers in high school that were really encouraging. Um, we had all those, those AP tests and stuff that they would try to, you know, encourage us to study for and take those tests. And just the other thing I liked at my high school was some of those classes were pretty small. You know, it was a bigger high school, but um, but some of the like advanced classes were small, and so that you know had a close relationship with some of the teachers and things like that, and they always were really encouraging. So that just kind of helped propel it a little bit further. It's kind of kind of builds on itself, you know, when you get the right encouragement. I think at a young age, it just kind of kind of keeps it's like a feedback loop. So totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you yeah. you went through with the Air Force Academy, mm -hmm. but then you had to be an officer yeah. in the Air Force. What did you do as yeah. an officer? Um, so I was an officer in the Air Force for six years, and my first job was um, I was an aircraft maintenance officer for the Global Hawk, and that's an unmanned plane, like a high-altitude reconnaissance plane. And that was very early on. You know, we were just moving at the time from flying a prototype aircraft to the actual operational set of aircraft. And so I was in charge of a lot of the maintenance that happened 
on that plane. And that, at that time, you know, I was just like fresh out of college. So it was all just a big learning experience. You know, what was really good for me, I think, is that in the Air Force, if you're not a pilot, you get put into these like pretty serious management roles right away, which, you know, may or may not be good for the Air Force, but it was good for me, right? It was a really good experience oh, learning how to like manage all these, you know, I was in charge of a lot of people really quickly and had to... And how old were you um, at the time? Like 21, 22. You know, I learned a lot from that about kind of my, and I'm not a leadership role right now at my company, but I learned at that time a lot about my leadership style and how to be a good leader and motivate people and things like that. And I think there's still a lot for me to learn if I ever do get into a leadership role again, but um, that was a really cool experience. So the second job I had was the sort of the deputy mission manager is the title. So it was a manager of a, or like an assistant manager of a small space launch. Um, it was just like a multi-payload launch, which means we had four satellites that went up on one rocket and it was just a small rocket. They were mostly like experimental research and development satellites. And so my job was to kind of manage like the schedule and the budget and like the, some of the technical aspects. It was more of a management job than a, than a technical engineering job, which is what I didn't like about it. But I loved being exposed to a lot of that, that stuff. Okay. So, Did, yeah. Do you think that that persuaded you to go into your PhD work? Yes, absolutely. I, before that job, I thought I would, you know, I always wanted to go back to school, but I thought I would do math. But working on a space launch really kind of got me interested in aerospace. And, you know, I really enjoyed the things that we were, you know, we were working on. And we got to work with a lot of the engineers that designed and built these satellites. And I felt frustrated that I didn't get to get more into the technical details of it, that I was doing more of a management role. And I got to learn a lot of things on the surface that were really cool, but I didn't get to like dig into the, the details. So that's what got me excited to go back to school for aerospace instead of math. And just, you know, a couple of years in that job made me really want to want to get into that. How do you navigate that world? Are you the only woman there? Mm -hmm. I want to know yeah, okay. a lot about what it's like being the only woman. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. I think there's a lot to talk about there. So there are four or five of us women engineers in my company. How many um, people out total? Of, there's 50 people total, but then I can't remember the proportion that's engineers versus like business. And there's a few, uh, so it's, you know, four or five women engineers, but then we have a handful of other um, that do finance and things like that. But in my group, there's, you know, six of us or so, and I'm the only woman in that group. To an extent, it's really natural for me. Like I said, I've kind of been in environments like that since college. So that feels kind of normal. But I also... Was college hard being... Being one of the few women? It was kind of like going to a men's school. Right? <laughs> kind of, yeah. I mean, it really yeah. kind of is. I went yeah. to a women's school. And, and did you, you have siblings? Do you I have had a sister. Yeah, I have a younger okay, sister. Okay, so you have a sister. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, college was... Um, I, I don't know if I... You know, I was just like so focused that I don't even know if I noticed it. I was really motivated to like do well at the Air Force Academy. And uh, I mean, there were women there. There weren't a lot of us, but, you know, I had female roommates and everything were like that. Were there even fewer who majored in math? Yeah, there actually my year, it was surprising. There were like four or five of us out of like 13, I think. I might I might be way off on those numbers, but there were quite a few, like the proportion of women was really high. So it didn't even feel totally isolated. Yeah, there were some other kind of weird things, you know, like you have to just deal with not being surrounded by a lot of women and that kind of thing. But I don't know if I really thought about it that much at the time. I think about it more now. <laughs> so what's it like and now? So now, yeah, I'm the only woman on my team, my team of six, and I tend to notice a lot of the qualities that I think 
like women versus men are socialized to have or train or you know learn yeah. to have as, as they grow up and I notice differences between the way that I act or you know assert myself or things like that and and the men um and so it's always this question in the back of my mind so like one of one of the things I struggle with is having like sort of the proper level of assertiveness when it comes to my ideas or my way of doing things or things like that because I am really conscious of like I don't want to step on people's toes I don't want to you know I want to let other people have their chance and I you know I don't want to overshadow anyone but at the same time like to be successful I think in my engineering job in particular I really need to be probably more assertive than I am and the thing that I've noticed a lot is that the men that I work with that comes very naturally to them you know Mm -hmm. and for me I really struggle with it all the time and then when I am assertive I question whether okay was that right was that perceived in a weird way am I you know being too aggressive you know is that the right way to do it and so that's just something I've been working on, but I'm really happy to have a lot of coworkers that I can talk to about that. And my boss as well. I've had multiple conversations with my boss about that. How is your boss male or female? he's male? Okay. Yeah. I think women yeah. are just socialized to look for a compromise more, right? be willing to compromise yeah. more. And, and I think some just, of those we are don't really, even know we're, ha- we're doing it. Sometimes. Yeah. Some of those are really good qualities and there are mm-hmm. good times for that. And there are also good times to be a little bit more assertive and go ahead and, you know, so like I'll notice conversations where the men are not afraid to talk over one, one another or just like, Hey, I have the floor now. So I'm going to keep talking where I naturally just, if someone else wants to say something, I'll step back and let them, you know, things, just things like right. that. In some ways I feel like it puts me at a disadvantage. And in other ways, I think those are good qualities that should be also celebrated, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I said, I'm really lucky to have my boss. His name is Evan. It's very easy to have conversations with him about this stuff. And he's really great at giving feedback. And I told him this is something I want to work on doing this in kind of an appropriate, like being more assertive in an appropriate way without losing those like abilities to compromise and listen to other people. You know, so we're able to have conversations about that. I'm sure that's huge. And it's been really great. Yeah. Yeah. It's the double-edged sword of being a woman. I have this as well in a male-dominated work where, especially when you get up through the leadership ranks, it's kind of like the Hillary Clinton syndrome. Like you have to be aggressive and assertive like the men, but you can't be too aggressive and assertive yeah, because right. then you're a bitch. Yeah. And well that, and like the men can always, not always, men can often retreat back into their sort of band of men, you know, like support each other. It's yeah. almost like they kind of close ranks. Sometimes I think when they feel intimidated, by yeah. women, even if it's a man that you may have had disagreements with or whatever in the past, it's easy to sort of unite against yeah, the ideas yeah. of a woman. Or, I can see that. And like um, something that I kind of struggle with is like sometimes something will happen and I'm like questioning why, like why did that, is that because I'm a woman or is that because of, the, you know, and it's right. just like having to go through the extra thought process of like maybe it has nothing to do with that or maybe, right. you know, like maybe it has more to do with my skills or my abilities and not because I'm a woman or maybe it is because I'm a woman and just like having to kind of reason. And men never do that. that. Right. Men never think, is this because I'm a man that this happened? Right. And they don't have to go to their bosses and say, all right, so how do I navigate this as a woman yeah. or as a man? Yeah. yeah. They, they don't have to no. do that. And we can speak to that firsthand because in an earlier episode that everyone should go back and listen to, we interviewed Rachel Esters, who was mm-hmm. a male in a law enforcement leadership role who uh, then transitioned to a woman and spoke about her experience and how difference. blatantly obvious it was that as a woman, she was sort of automatically excluded from conversations that her ideas did not get enough buy-in yeah whereas before as a man you know she was seen as being really proactive and what you know what an out-of-the-box thought 
But then as a woman, it was like, well, I don't know, that's very risky or that's... Yeah, yeah. So and that was fascinating to hear. Like it really, it really, really, really does happen. Yeah. The thing that I think is so tough about it too is like, this is happening with people that I really respect and like, and you know, it's sure. like people it's unconscious. that they're not, they don't mean to do it. Mm-hmm. They want to give, you know, my ideas credit and they want to listen to me and they want, you know, and I, I very much believe that of them, but then it's kind of naturally. And I think I probably do it to other women too, unfortunately. And so it's just kind of like stepping back and examining our, it, you know, made me realize I also need to step back and examine my own bias and examine my own. When I happen to be in a position of privilege, how do I use that? Or how do I treat other people in that way? So what just, is the age range of the people that are kind of in your group? Is there, um, is, uh, I think the young youngest is probably in his early twenties and I'm 36. And then there's another older guy who I think is in his fifties. So yeah, so it's a pretty wide age range. And that's, you know, that's also kind of interesting with like things around gender, how, you know, different people of different ages, you know, approach that. And, what do you yeah. find yourself doing as a woman to get those ideas heard? Like I have to downplay my kind of femaleness. Right. I try to, like, I don't want to be too cute. I don't want to be yes. too to end too much to anything because I don't want it to be an issue. Like, is that what my attention is about or is it because of my ideas? Right. What have you, what strategies have you I would say I do do the same. I've kind of adopted something similar without really meaning to. I I feel like I can't act too girly or, you know, I don't really like that word, but, (laughs) you know, I can't, I can't uh, act in a certain way if I want people to take me seriously Um, so I think that that has just kind of happened over the years of being in, you know, these environments. And I, I, I've kind of realized that over the years, I prefer to be taken seriously and for people to think that I know what I'm talking about and I'm intelligent and things like that. I prefer that to having like, you know, guys be interested in me or think I'm cute or, you know, things like that. And so that's kind of what I've gone towards more naturally. And not that, but I mean, you can't be both. Almost. Yeah. So that's the thing that's but frustrating me. But men can be is, both. And it seems like it can that be makes it hard and... too, because it's hard to forge genuine relationships with your yeah. male coworkers. Because if you share things that are going on with your life from a personal, you know, your personal life, then that's almost used against you sometimes because it does, that you can't not be feminine when you're right. talking and about. Right. And if you're too friendly, if you're too, then yeah. oh, then you're open to you're weak, or you're open to advancements. Yeah. But if you're not friendly enough, then you're not nice. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Are you friends with them? I am do you good. Have fr- to have I'm good friends with the people that I work with, which. I am lucky to work with some really great people that are easy to be friends with and conscious of a lot of this stuff. You know, like I said, they still have, like we all do, their biases and and everything. But I find that sometimes that's difficult when you're friends with the the people. And, you know, it's like, okay, I'm friends with you, but and I don't want to, like, mess that up or, like, mess up our working relationship. But then I'm also really frustrated about the fact that you didn't listen to me this this one time or that you seemed dismissive of my idea or whatever. And I'm, you know, what I've really been working on is just ways to, because I'm good friends with these people and I respect them a lot in a working environment, ways to address this directly, you know, because I think that, that they're receptive and not everyone is, not everyone is receptive to talking about that stuff. I don't think it's necessarily productive to talk about that stuff with everyone, but I'm lucky enough to be around people that are receptive and, you know, we can have a good conversation about that. Um, if I, 
feel weird about something that happened. So, so how do you propose that we get more girls into the STEM fields or interested and passionate about math and science? I think a couple things, you know, for me, I was lucky, like I said earlier, to be exposed through my dad to science and engineering. But I think that, you know, just in general, having role models as a young kid, you know, seeing, oh, this woman or even a guy doing something really cool and knowing like I could do that too. You know, so I think just working, I don't think it necessarily has to be all women working with young girls. Did you have other female um, role models? I mean, I would, I consider my mom a role model, but she's not an engineer. So, um, and yeah. Tell us a little bit about your mom. What did she do? Because her story seems really interesting too. Yeah. Let's see. She majored in German and then she got a, a master's in linguistics and Um, has just done a lot of cool stuff. Like she lived in Germany to, you know, work on her German for a little while and then has taught off and on, I think, English and and other things until she met my dad. And then, you know, she spent, just put a lot of effort into raising us, my sister and I, when we were growing up. She didn't work that whole time, but then started back into teaching again when we were in high school, which I thought was really cool because, you know, she went this whole time without, you know, just kind of like putting everything into us. And then she was like, I think at that point, you know, when you haven't been in a career that long, she had to go back and get her teaching degree and things like that to like go back and, you know, do this thing that, you know, she's been out of for so long. I think that that would be really scary (laughs) and difficult. Um, And she just, but she just went for it. You know, then she did a Fulbright um, scholarship where she taught in Germany for a year and, you know, her German was like pretty rusty at the time. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, she went all by herself without my dad because my dad still had obligations. So in the she US. did a Fulbright like after you, after my sister and I graduated high school. So both of us were out of the house cool. and she's, you know, like she's in her fifties, I think at the time. Wow. And, you know, just, I think that, that it was so different from what she had been doing, raising us and, you know, teaching high school English up until that point to just go all by herself and live in Germany and, you know. And I think it's incredibly liberating for women who have raised their kids who then get to sort of like, you don't have to compromise in that way. You just get to really immerse yourself in something that you're passionate about. It really is like a second life. Yeah. And that's what I love about both my parents too. And that that it's taught me that like at any point, if you want to do something for yourself or something different, like you still can, it might take a lot of work. You might have to Mm -hmm. like go back to school or do, do whatever, you know, but there's no, you know, at least I want to act like there's no point at which I can't try something new or make a big commitment and just dive into something that like, what would you try? If, if like money wasn't an issue, (laughs) if logistics weren't an issue, what would you try? Uh, well, right now, right now I'm trying to learn Spanish and I would, I would really like to just go live in, in South America and maybe do like some mountain bike guiding, but then also just get really like immersed in a different culture. That's what sometimes I feel like I'm lacking. I'm very, you know, in a very like homogeneous culture, I think right now in terms of like the engineers I work with, it's just like a lot of people that are similar to me that I'm around all the time. And I think I would love to just experience not just on like a, you know, quick couple week trip, which I do also and love, but like full time live my life the way in a different culture and like kind of understand it better and meet people that are uh, different from me and have different backgrounds and grew up in a different place and things like that. So I think, I think that's the thing that I would, um, I would love to do. And then maybe even like, 
I don't know, like having a small farm or, you know, something cool like that is just like so different from anything I know anything about. But it doesn't seem implausible. Like it seems like that's a realistic thing that you could do. Yeah. And so I I would really love, you know, that I've kind of had that in the back of my mind, which is why I'm trying to start to learn Spanish. And it's just kind of going to be about timing because I love my job now and I don't want to leave it, you know, but I, this is another goal that I have. So with a job that is so, I mean, I'm assuming that it feels very mentally draining and very demanding. What are the things that you do? How do you spend your time when you're not so, at work? Yeah. So I'm really into mountain biking. That's my kind of one of my main ways to sort of decompress. And I just like to, I'm a little bit of um, introvert, an introvert. So, so being able to spend time on my own, especially mountain biking or, you know, going running with my dog or things like that. That's kind of the way that I relax. You know, I've also kind of found that like, just sitting around at home doing nothing or like watching TV doesn't really work for me that well. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of get feel that makes me kind of feel bad worse than, you know, actually going out and being outside. Even if I'm not like, it's not that I have to go outside and exercise or do something like super hardcore, but just being like outdoors and away from, you know, I'm in front of a screen all day. So like say, being in yeah. front of a screen more is not something that I like and that helps me uh, recharge. So I think just being outside or being, do you even have a TV? I do. Yeah, I have a TV. I haven't had yeah, it for very long. you throw it away. <laughs> yeah, I could throw it, it away. <laughs> just makes you sad. <laughs> yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. That was the best thing I ever did was got rid mm-hmm. of my TV. Really? It liberated me. Yeah. Because you feel like you should and you just default to laziness sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I have to, I do have to be careful because they're, you know, every once in a while I get into like a TV series and, mm-hmm. and then it's like, I get home. It's like the first thing I'm like, I'm like, Oh, this is so relaxing. And then you do it and it feel bad. doesn't right. help anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I think it's very natural to just do that, but it doesn't. You yeah. can knit a little, you can get someone to knit you a little TV cozy. What's the uh, best piece of advice you've ever received? So I, I always remember something that my dad told me that helped me out a lot when I was in the Air Force. He said, just whatever you're doing, work as hard as you can at it and, you know, focus as hard as you can on it and just put everything into it, even if you don't like it at the time, which doesn't mean, you know, stick with it forever and don't change what you're doing. But what it does mean is like said sort of differently, you know, you control and put effort into what you can control mm-hmm. and then you know, what you can't, you just kind of let that go, which is extremely hard to follow sometimes. But, um, and you spoke about that earlier, which I think is such an interesting point. A lot of people think that when you have a PhD or when you have a job like yours, that you get to pick and choose what you work on. And it's always things that you're really interested and passionate about, but you spoke about that. That's not always the case. Right. Yeah. I've been lucky since I finished my PhD that it it has been that way. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't necessarily expect it to always be that way because of that. But when I was in the Air Force, I was for a little while really frustrated with my job and, you know, I had a commitment so I couldn't really do much about it. You know, that's where that advice really came in handy too was that I did try to work hard and just focus well on what I was doing and a couple of things came from that is I, I felt like by focusing your effort and your, your attention on one thing, whether or not you enjoy it, I think the focus itself kind of helps you learn to enjoy it. Whereas if you're kind of like, half in, half out, that's, that's when I find myself dissatisfied. And then the other thing that it did was help get my, I remember my last boss in the Air Force didn't like that I wanted to get out of the Air Force and go to grad school, but he got behind me like a hundred percent because. Is it hard to get out? It wasn't hard to get out. My commitment was done, but it was hard in the sense that, you know, my boss wanted to keep me. A lot of people wanted me to stay. 
you know, so it was hard That's sort pressure. of disappointing people. And there was a little bit of pressure just from, from people that wanted me to stay in the Air Force. And, and they, you know, it tends to be that you're like, you know, if you perform fairly well, you're groomed for different roles or different paths. And I think people can get disappointed if they put effort into you and into developing you and you decide you want to do something else. So I think right. that was a little bit hard for my boss at the time. But he also was like, hey, I've seen her work really hard and she wants to do something different because she's passionate about something different. Right. So I'm going to support her in that and help her do it. And and I think most people, that's what most people that, you know, care about you or have an interest in you, hopefully that's the way they're going to be. You know, I'm sure that's not always the case, but I've been lucky that way. And I think that working hard, no matter whether I really love what I'm doing or not, is is kind of has kind of helped facilitate that a little bit, which is not to say I've always been perfect at that. No, <laughs> but but... It, it, I just think it's a good thing to strive for. Yeah. So if you don't go to South America right away yeah. <laughs> to do your mountain biking and farming <laughs> dreams, <laughs> what do you want to do professionally in the future? Like yeah. say like five uh, years. Yeah. yeah that's always, years. that is a really hard question for me sometimes. Um, and I've talked to my boss a bit about that and kind of struggled with it. Um, because I do, you know, I, I told you I have that background in sort of leadership and management roles. And if I wanted to, I think, you know, maybe I could find my way into management role at my current company and have, yeah, just a more of a leadership position. And some parts of me think that would be really cool because I do really love interacting with people and, you know, having a little bit of the ability to make decisions that affect things more broadly than just the small piece that I'm working on. You know, my reservation with that is I'm pretty protective of my time. You know, I'll put in more hours um, sometimes if I need to, but I don't want that to be the norm. I like to have a 40 hour week as often as possible and not yeah. go above that. You work to live, and, not live to work. Yeah. And so that's really important to me just from a lifestyle perspective. And if I can't have that on a mostly regular basis, then, you know, then I don't want that job. That's like 50 hours a week on a, on a regular basis or, you know, and the 50 is not that much to a lot of people, but for me, I, it just where my priorities are. Right. Um, and I think it's different for some people. If you're you know, extremely passionate about your, your work, which I'm passionate about my work, but I'm passionate about other things. There are people that I know that just hundred percent all into their work. And that's not for me, but I think it's great for some people, you know, mm, I think right. that some, if it makes them happy and they, you know, just really want to like thrive on putting that much time and effort into it. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's just not how I'm not able to do that. And I don't want to do that. So that's kind of the uh, what I see is a drawback of going into any kind of leadership or management role because um, most of the examples I've seen of people in those kind of kind of roles, you know, you just never get to turn your work off. And I don't think I don't think that's ever going to be healthy for me. I need to have a, you know, another side to my life. So I think that's really insightful. Yeah. That I think you, it's a lot of self-awareness. Yeah, yeah, that's huge that you realize that because I think that so many people who are good at their job get funneled into this leadership role and then they get away from what they're good at. Yeah. But they're good at, they get funneled because they're yeah, good. It's they're, yeah. interesting, but it's also great that you're not necessarily jumping towards that because yeah. you see that. Yeah. I mean, if, it, if the right opportunity came up, I might go for it, but I would have to just fit in with, you know, what I want and what I feel like my strengths are. So thank you so much. Cool. Holly, thank you so much for having me with us. Yeah, this was really fun. <laughs> this is women in a day podcast and to make sure that you check out our website, we're going to have some more information about Holly. We'll have some pictures there and also check out our Instagram and Facebook pages 
And thank you to Tony Tarbox and Hilary Blair for their assistance in the production of our show.